The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Would you join me in prayer as we ask for God's blessing on his word this morning? And Father, we do thank you for the treasure of your word. And even as here we are studying this passage about the crucifixion of our Lord, of our Savior, of our Master, who died for our sins to reconcile us to our Father in heaven. Father, I pray that this truth would sink deep down into our hearts this morning, that we would be transformed and changed by it, that hard hearts would be softened, that seared consciences would be renewed. Father, that we would be tender toward you, recognizing all that you have done for us, the love that has been shown, the price that has been paid in love for us. Father, work in this time through your word and by the power of your spirit that we might know you, that we might know you more intimately, that we might see you more clearly, that we might look upon you and know that our Lord is the only one true Lord and worthy of our lives and of our devotion. And so work in this time, we pray, and we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can go ahead and have a seat. So as we look at this passage this morning, we're seeing what Jesus went through, what Jesus endured for us. And Mark, in recording this for us, gives us a look at three separate groups of people. Three separate onlookers, three observers of what Jesus was going through at the cross. And so as we work through this passage this morning, that's, that's kind of how I intend to go through it. First of all, just looking over the passage and seeing what it was that Jesus went through, what he endured, what he, he bore at the cross for us. And then taking another pass through this passage of Scripture and seeing these different groups of observers and, and what they did in response to what Jesus was suffering, how they responded to what they saw, what they heard, and what they knew of Jesus. So if you start with me here in Mark chapter 15 and verse 33, we read that it's now the sixth hour. The sixth hour had come, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, as Seth taught us through this passage earlier, uh, this earlier passage last week, we saw that Jesus was crucified at the third hour of the day. If you look back to verse 25... 
It says there that it was the third hour of the day when they crucified Jesus. Now, that would have been 9 a.m. And as we come to verse 33, it's now the sixth hour of the day. So, three hours have passed. And for the next three hours, until the ninth hour of the day, that is, until three in the afternoon, there is darkness over the whole land, from noon until 3 p.m. Now, this was during the time of Passover. It would have been a full moon. It's not a solar eclipse that lasted for three hours. This is a supernatural darkness that is over the whole land for this duration. This was a literal event that took place with deeply symbolic meaning. As Jesus is hanging there on the cross, and the land, the whole land becomes dark for three hours. Have you ever experienced a time or a place where you've been in darkness that it's almost tangible? The darkness is almost something that you can feel? John, in his first epistle, he tells us that God is light. And so, when we see the absence of light, when we see darkness, it makes us think about either the absence of of God, of of God's work, of God's ways, perhaps, of evil. It also speaks to us about God's judgment, his displeasure. If you remember all the way back to Exodus chapter 10, before the Passover took place, there was a plague of darkness, a plague of darkness over the land as a sign of God's judgment. And we read there in Exodus chapter 10 that that darkness, it says in Exodus 10, that darkness could be felt. That darkness could be felt. And I think it's probably the same here in Mark chapter 15. There's this darkness over the whole land for three hours at the height of mankind's rebellion against God. That is what this is. This is rebellion against God. They have taken the God-man, Jesus, and they have nailed him to a cross. They have crucified him, and darkness cloaks the land. As Jesus is crying out about his being forsaken, as the Father separates himself from the Son, there's darkness. Things are taking place here in this passage that we're reading that had never taken place before. In all of eternity, this separation, such things that would never take place again, once in all of history, this took place. The darkness, just as this was, what Jesus was enduring for us, And this is such a spiritual upheaval that even at noon, if we we think about 
right now, it's, it's quarter after 10, and the sun, even with clouds in the sky, the sun is bright so much that I'm having to wear a hat so I'm not just squinting at all of you. And this is Jerusalem. This is the Middle East. This is from noon until 3. And darkness was over the whole land for three hours. Such a cataclysmic spiritual event that it's evident even in nature. Verse 34, we read, At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Six hours hanging on the cross as it started at the third hour of the day at nine o'clock in the morning. And now at three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cries out. Now you understand this about crucifixion, don't you? That crucifixion was engineered to be as humiliating and as painful as it possibly could be. This wasn't supposed to be an efficient way of punishing a victim and getting capital punishment execution over with efficiently. No, the Romans weren't concerned with that. They had worked at crucifixion trying to perfect it, to make it a long and a drawn-out process as painful as possible, as humiliating as it could be. And Jesus has been on the cross for six hours, and he cries out. He cries out. This is not a quick death. This is an agonizing death. This is a suffocating death. You see, the the victim of crucifixion would be suffocating even as they were hanging on the cross with spikes driven through their wrists and a spike driven through their ankles. And that's what would be supporting them hanging there all of their weight from those points and hanging in such a way that they couldn't breathe without pulling themselves up on those spikes and pushing up on their ankles to be able to draw in another breath and then relaxing again as they exhale until they need to breathe again. For six hours, there was no comfortable position. There was no posture that you could find yourself in that would be one of rest. It was just moving the point of pain from one area to another area. But even as painful 
as this crucifixion was, even as they pulled themselves up and their backs had been ripped open through the beating they had received before crucifixion, their back rubbing against the the timber, the rough timber of the cross. But it wasn't the physical pain that caused Jesus to cry out. A physical pain that, that I don't think we could overstate. Have, have you ever used the word excruciating? When you talk about something being painful, it was excruciating. We get that from crucifixion, from the cross, out of the cross. It was excruciating. I don't know if any of us have ever felt pain that was truly excruciating. And that's the pain that Jesus was experiencing. But as he cries out, his cry isn't a cry of physical pain. He cries with a loud voice, with everything that he had. Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which Mark translates for us, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what was most painful for Jesus. Even as Jesus was there in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying to his Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But if not, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Yes, there was pain. Yes, there was physical suffering. Yes, there was humiliation and there was torment. But the thing that caused Jesus the most trouble was this here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? Why have you abandoned me? Jesus is is quoting from Psalm 22, a messianic psalm. As a psalmist cries out, recognizing, God, you seem so distant. You seem so far away, like you have left me. His fellowship with the Father was broken. You see, in all of eternity, this had never happened. God exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect unity. One God in three persons. And here, at this point in the history of redemption... There's this separation, this temporary separation, and Jesus cries out as he is enduring the wrath and the displeasure of God. No, not for his own sins. Jesus had not deserved any of this. Jesus willingly offered himself, went to the cross, suffered all that he suffered not deserving any of it. He went 
as our substitute. He went because we deserve that. He went because we were the ones that should have been crucified. He went because we are the ones that should receive the wrath of God poured out for sin. And Jesus went as our substitute to make payment for our sins, to receive the wrath and the displeasure of God so that we could receive the pleasure of God, the grace of God, relationship with God. Jesus is suffering tremendously separation from his Father. Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes to us that Christ himself actually became a curse for us to redeem us from the curse of the law because we have broken the law. We talked about this in community group recently. If you break one point of the law, you've broken the law. And if you're guilty in one, you're guilty of it all. And the law brings with it a curse because if you break it, you're guilty of it. You're deserving of death, of hell, of judgment, of punishment that is eternal. But Christ became a curse for us. He endured this for us. And this is his cry. This is what causes him the greatest agony as he's hanging there on the cross, broken fellowship with his Father. Now, in verse 37, we read that Jesus again utters a loud cry. And breathed his last. No longer fighting. No longer trying to sustain life. No, Jesus knew the purpose for which he came. He knew what it was that he came to accomplish. Even even when they came to seize him in the garden... And they say, we're we're looking for Jesus, and he responds, I am he, and they all fall down flat. Do you think it was by force that they took Jesus? No, he went willingly. He could have walked right through them, stepped right over them, kept them flat on the ground, but he knew this is the reason for which I came. And so he went, willingly, obediently to his Father's command to accomplish the mission that his Father had sent him on to reconcile sinners such as you and I back to our Father. And even here at this point, Jesus then cries out, breathes his last, and gives up his life. 
And at that moment, Mark records, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Who is it that tore the curtain of the temple? This wasn't the doing of a man ripping it from the bottom. No, this was the doing of God separating this from top down to bottom. This curtain of the temple, you understand, right? This curtain, it separated the most holy place from the rest of the temple. And here, at the death of Jesus, this divine act of God, inside of the most holy place, was the ark of God and the altar of incense. We read in Hebrews chapter 9, the ark with the mercy seat over it, where they would come and they would offer blood on the day of atonement once every year. And only after offering sacrifice, the high priest for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. Only after that, on one day of each year, could the high priest go in to enter into the most holy place unprepared or uninvited with certain death. The holiness of God was too great. But there is a new covenant. There is a new time. We have a Savior who came and died, and we read in Hebrews chapter 10 that Jesus came and he instituted this new covenant for us. I'll turn there and I'll read for us from Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This would have been a terrifying moment for anybody in the temple when that curtain was torn from top to bottom. They would have been exposed, if you will. And I can imagine they would have thought, this is death for us. This is instant. Any moment now, I'm gone. I'm done with. Jesus opened up the separation, that which kept us from the presence of God, that which served as a, as a veil, as a separation 
from close relationship with God. And Jesus, as he gave his life on the cross, as he breathed his last, this curtain, this veil, this separation, this barrier between us and God was removed. And it was the act of God that did this, not us. This is divine grace that God would do this opening up a way for us to be near Him, to be in relationship with Him. And it is only through the sacrifice that Jesus has made. Church, do you understand the the great privilege that is ours in this? That we can draw near to God? The writer of Hebrews, he uses these most amazing words, confidence, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, confidence. Now, I don't know about you, but if if I were high priest and I had made sacrifice for my sins and for the sins of the people, and it was the day of atonement, and it's the day that I go in to offer this on the mercy seat, confidence? I think I would have been trembling. What if we missed something? What if there was a blemish on that animal that we sacrificed and that sacrifice wasn't acceptable? And as soon as I stepped through this curtain, I just dropped dead. But the author of Hebrews says, confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. But that's not all he says. Let us draw near with a true heart in what? Full assurance of faith. Isn't that astounding? That we can draw near to God in that way with confidence, with full assurance? Not doubting, not wondering, have I done enough? Have I been good enough? Have the sacrifices that I've offered atoned for my sins? No, we have confidence. We have full assurance of faith in Jesus Christ. He is our champion. He is our great high priest. He is the one that went before us. He is the one that offered sacrifice for us. So we can be confident. We can come near to God and know I'm in right standing with him, not because of my own goodness, not because of my own merit, not because of anything that I have performed or any cleanup of my my attitude or my behavior or my thoughts or my words. No, because of what Jesus has done for me, I can be confident in coming near to God. As we draw near to God in prayer, we don't come to Him based on our own merit. God, you should listen to me because, well, I've done really well this week. 
I attended church service. I read my Bible. I helped with chores around the house. No, when we come to God in prayer, we come to God in the name of Jesus. That's why often even when we pray, we pray in Jesus' name. We say those words because it's not based on us. It's based on what Christ has done, that he has gone before us, that he has opened the way for us. We can draw near in confidence. We can come in full assurance of faith. We can have this relationship with God which is what we're designed for. This is what we're created for. This is what you and I are made for. Relationship with God. Even at the very beginning, God and his creation, and he creates Adam and Eve, and he enjoys fellowship with them, relationship with them. Until they sin and they break that relationship. This is what we're made for. This is what we've been created for. This is even like John writes in his first epistle. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Church, relationship with God is what we have been made for. When we gather together in worship and we're singing songs to God together, when we're lifting voices and hearts to God in song or in prayer, or when we're in his word together, when we're drawing near to him, when we're seeking his kingdom and his righteousness, that is what we're made for. That's what we're designed for. That's how we find our fulfillment. We try to fill it in all sorts of other ways, and we'll find that they're, they're empty. If God is not at the center of our pursuit if he is not our aim, our prize, our goal. Jesus has accomplished this for us. He has made this possible. Well, as we continue working through this passage, we're going to now shift our focus, and we're going to look at these observers of Jesus. We've taken our own quick observation of what Jesus endured on the cross, but now we have three different groups or individuals, and I want to take some time to look at them together. And this first group that we see are in verses 35 and 36, and they're the bystanders. The bystanders. Verse 35, we read, some of the bystanders... Hearing it, that is, hearing Jesus cry out, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. 
They misunderstand him. Likely that he's not even able to articulate words very well at this point with all that his, his body has suffered and endured. And these bystanders around, they hear him crying out. They think, oh, sounds like he's crying out for Elijah. He must want Elijah to come and to save him from the cross. Verse 36, and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. What was the purpose of the sour wine? This is the the second time now, as Jesus is on the cross, that he's been offered something to drink. Last week in, in the passage that Seth taught us, we read about wine mixed with myrrh. That would have been given to the victims of crucifixion to, to try to numb or, or dull the pain. And we saw that Jesus refused it. He didn't want anything that would numb him. He didn't want anything that would dull him. No, he knew, I am here to experience suffering handed to me by God to atone for the sins of humanity. And so he didn't take this painkiller, if you will, the wine mixed with myrrh. But here now, another drink is offered to him, sour wine. And he takes it. He receives it. He drinks it. This wine vinegar drink. It had no medicinal quality. No, this was for the purpose of of quenching thirst. This was for the purpose, I think, in in the minds of the bystanders offering it to him of prolonging his life. Do you see what they're crying out? Do you see what they say? Wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. I don't think that this was mercy that the bystanders were offering to Jesus. Let's give him something to drink. He looks thirsty. Let's let's ease his way some. No, I think this is, whoa, it sounds like he's calling for Elijah. Let's give him something to drink so maybe he'll stay alive a little longer and we can watch a little longer this show, this amusement that we're getting. And, And let's see, let's wait If Elijah will come to take him down. In Psalm 69, verses 19 through 21, the psalmist writes, You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity. But there was none. 
and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. No, this was not a drink offered out of pity or to comfort. This wasn't mercy. I think this was more of a cruel curiosity. Wait, let us see. We want to watch this a little longer. We want to prolong his suffering. We want to see if Elijah will show up. We want entertainment. We want amusement. We, we want to show. As we're standing by here watching these men on the cross, we want this to last as long as possible. It's not sadness. It's not sorrow. It's not sympathy. Even at the, the very least, to see a human being treated in this way, suffering as the victims of crucifixion would suffer, to realize this is wrong, something should be done, human beings shouldn't be treated this way, but they don't have that. They don't have that, that conscience to convict them of not only standing and seeing it, but seemingly enjoying it. They wanted to even push it further. Instead of sympathy, there's cruelty. Instead of help, they're going to offer this drink just to further hurt. And instead of a righteous hatred of what was taking place in front of them, the crucifixion, the brutal killing of a human being, there's this foul enjoyment of it. Wait, we don't want this game to be over yet. Let's see if Elijah will come to take him down. This is like bystanders. They're, they're like folks who see harm being done to someone else. And in, instead of stepping in to help, their first thought is, I need to get a camera. I need to get a picture or a video of this. Or I need to pull up a chair because I'm going to sit and I'm going to watch this. Get some enjoyment out of the suffering of others. That's the position of these bystanders. They are there by sinful choice. They weren't forced to be here at the crucifixion. Even if it was on, on, on a busy thoroughfare, there was no looking away and looking down as they passed by the victims there on the crosses. No, as they would have been passing by, they were drawn in. They see this. And not even just in passing. These aren't passers-by. They're bystanders. They've decided to hang out for a while. We want to watch how this plays out. We want to see the end of these men on these crosses drawn in. These are the opposite 
of the blessed man in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. No, these bystanders, they were there standing in the way of sinners, sitting in the seat of scoffers. Wait, wait, let's see. Let's see what happens. Let's see if he keeps calling out for Elijah, if Elijah will come to rescue him. They were there by sinful choice. And also these bystanders, they misunderstood Jesus. They didn't know who he was or what he was about. They didn't even understand the words that he was crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They completely misunderstood. And I don't think there really was much of an intention of understanding him. They only saw what they wanted to see. Suffering, blood, death. This was just entertainment. Jesus on the cross. But brothers and sisters, understand the cross of Jesus is no trivial matter. This is a, a message of life and of death. This is a message that reconciles sinners to God. This is a message that we ourselves have even been commissioned with, entrusted with. This is what Paul writes in his second letter to the Corinthian church. In chapter 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The bystanders, they were set in their ways. They were unchanged by what they saw, what they witnessed and experienced. They only saw what they wanted to see. But they were not the only observers this day. We read also about this centurion in verse 39. The centurion, a, a commander of a hundred men, in the Roman army. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way Jesus breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. The centurion was posted here in such a, a way that he would see all of the suffering of Jesus. Jesus. 
And it was his responsibility to ensure that the crucifixion was carried out, that it was effective, and even to confirm his death. We'll see later that the centurion has to confirm the death of Jesus. We're told that he stood facing Jesus. So he is an observer. He is one that is watching. He is one that is seeing what is taking place here as he stood facing him. Now, this doesn't speak of, of an endearing facing him, face to face, like, like friends might talk, face to face. No, this is more of an opposing. This is, this is more of someone hostile or against or contrary to. That's the way this word is even used in other places in the New Testament, like a contrary wind, a wind that is blowing against you. Or as Paul writes in Acts 26, verse 9, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. The centurion is standing there opposing Jesus, facing him, there to make sure that this crucifixion is accomplished. He's there out of duty. The bystanders, oh, they made the sinful choice to be there, but the centurion was commanded to be there. Perhaps similar to some of the children in our congregation. They're here not not by their own choice, but because they've been told to be here. It's out of duty. It's because you've been commanded. If that's the case, we're glad you're here. And we pray that as we continue to look at the cross, and as we continue to lift up Jesus, that as an onlooker, as an observer, that you would be changed, even like I believe the centurion was changed. The centurion was moved to belief. Do you see that in Mark? Do you see his words? Truly, this man was the Son of God. He was moved to belief. Now, I'm not going to go so far as to say that the centurion became a Christian on this day, I don't know about that. But he was moved to belief, that is, believing that Jesus is unique, believing that Jesus was special, that there was something different about him. He's unlike any other man. The centurion would have been familiar with crucifixion. The centurion would have been familiar with the responses of men as they hung on these crosses. He doesn't say this about either of the two thieves that are hung on crosses next to Jesus on his right hand and on his left hand that very same day. 
He says this about Jesus. Why? He saw what he did not expect to see. The bystanders saw what they wanted. Suffering, death, blood, some amusement for their sinful hearts. But the centurion saw what he didn't expect to see. You see, even in John's gospel, John tells us that as Jesus is hanging there on the cross, he looks down and he sees Mary, his mother, and he entrusts the care of his mother to John. Matthew tells us that as Jesus is there on the cross, that there was an earthquake, that rocks were split, even that the bodies of dead saints were raised and walked into Jerusalem. There's darkness over the whole land for three hours. And all of this is taking place around the death of Jesus. Jesus was unlike any other man the centurion would have seen crucified. And he is convinced truly, truly, without a doubt, this man was the Son of God. This man stands apart. This man is unique. And here, as he starts out of duty, something changes. Something switches. As he pays attention, as he watches, as he looks to see what Jesus is doing, he sees something divine. He sees something that could only be credited to God and God's work. And wherever he was before, doubt about Jesus or just going through the motions, I've got to get this one crucified as well. As he stands and he faces Jesus, as he observes what is taking place, he's changed. All of us at some point have gone through that, that change. All of us that are Christians here at some point have gone through that change. And that's why I say, even if you're only here out of duty, you're not old enough to, to drive yourself here or to stay home alone. It's what your family does. You're, you're tagging along. You're here because you're supposed to be here. But... It's not your own choice. We're glad that you're here. And we want to invite you to look to Jesus with us and observe him and see that this is not just merely man. No, this is the God-man. This is the one who did wonders. This is the one who still does wonders, who changes hearts who reveals God to us as we continue to look to him. The last group of observers in verses 40 and 41 of Mark 15, 
this group of women. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. We have these three women that are mentioned. I believe this is Mary, the mother of Jesus. If you reference back to Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, that'll help make that connection where it says, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph. And I think it is Salome, the mother of James and John, the disciples, the wife of Zebedee, the fisherman. You can look back to Matthew chapter 27 and verse 56 where that connection is made. These women looking on, observing from a distance. Now, were these women like the bystanders who were there just looking for entertainment, for amusement? Nothing could be further from the truth. Were they there like the Roman centurion, just there out of duty? No, not in the least. They were compelled there out of love because they loved Jesus. Their hearts were breaking as they see all that he suffers, all that he was enduring. We're told about these women. These are not just three random women. No, verse 41 tells us when Jesus was in Galilee, they followed him. They ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. We think of Jesus and the 12 disciples. And we think of this band of 13 traveling around Galilee, Jerusalem, Galilee, but understand there were many others. There were more disciples. There was this, this band of 12, yes, but then there were other followers of Jesus. And one of those groups that was so instrumental in the ministry of Jesus was this group of women that they followed him and they ministered to him. They served him. In fact, Luke chapter 8, we read that soon after Jesus went through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. These women ministered to Jesus. They helped him in his ministry. I think probably in many various ways, in practical ways, Likely, financially, they would have helped support the ministry of Jesus. Even in a couple days' time, 
these women would be buying spices in order to anoint the body of Jesus for burial. It's a beautiful service that these women provided. And it's an important ministry that they had. As they met the needs of Jesus, as they met the needs of the disciples and those who would come around, these women were women of influence. These women were women who served in mighty ways. These women were here, not like the bystanders out of sinful choice, not like the centurion out of duty. No, these women were here observing what Jesus was suffering out of righteous choice. They were there observing, seeing Jesus out of righteous choice. They were compelled to be there out of a love for Jesus. We love this man, our master, our teacher, our, our rabbi. They would soon even understand more clearly our Savior as these women would learn about the resurrection. It was revealed first to the women when they went to anoint his body in burial. They were there by righteous choice. And they were confirmed in their belief. They were confirmed in their belief as they saw, as they witnessed, as they beheld what Jesus was enduring on the cross. They were even more solidified and confirmed as they looked to the cross, as they looked to their master. He is the one that our lives will be devoted to. They were confirmed in their belief. And the bystanders, well, they saw what they came to see, death and blood. The centurion, he saw what he did not expect to see. Truly, this man was the Son of God. But these women here saw the very thing that they most did not want to see, their friend and their Lord dying, mocked and mistreated. They saw Jesus bleeding and crying out. They see him suffering. They see him die. But their devotion to Jesus, their closeness to Jesus, meant that they were also the first witnesses of his resurrection, of his triumph over death. And Jesus suffered on the cross, and he was buried, and he knew he would be raised. His death was not the end. And these women, as they drew near to Jesus, as, as they looked and observed Jesus suffering on the cross, they continued to draw near, continued to press in, continued to look to Jesus, continued to minister to him, even with these burial spices. And they understood the fact, the reality, the truth, the power 
of the resurrection of Jesus. I ask you this morning, as, as you look to the cross of Jesus, what is it that you see? Is it an entertaining story? Now, those Bible stories, they're pretty entertaining. Story of Jesus, it's a, it's a nice story. Whether I believe it or not, whether I've put my trust in it or not, whether there's faith there or not, it's amusing. Is it one that you're simply just passing the time with in this season of your life? Or do you see more accurately, even as the centurion was changed, and he came to see that truly this man was the Son of God? Do you see Jesus accurately as the Son of God? Do you see him as a duty? Do you see him as an obligation? Or do you see him as a delight and as an object of worship? Jesus came and he lived and he died so that we might be reconciled to God. He became a curse for us to redeem us from the curse of the law. Church, this is good news. This is the gospel. It is good news of what Jesus suffered, what Jesus did, what Jesus accomplished. Not as a helpless victim, but as an obedient and a willing servant and sacrifice for us. That we can look to him and we can be saved. That this is the message of salvation. The message of the cross is a powerful message bringing salvation to all of those who believe. And so I press on you this morning, church. Look to Jesus. See him as he is, who he is. Continue to press into him and believe. Let's pray and let's give thanks to God. Father, we do give you thanks for your great work, for the salvation that you have accomplished for us on our behalf, that Jesus suffered and died in our place, that we can have fellowship with you, and that we can have fellowship with one another. Not just an earthly relationship with one another, but that we can be united together in Christ. Father, I pray for those in our congregation, here in our gatherings Sundays, who are not at a place of belief. Those who are here because they've been brought here, but not making that willing choice. And Father, I pray that like the centurion, they would look to the cross and they would see the greatness of Jesus. That their minds would be changed even more that their hearts would be changed. That they would find delight in you, in serving you, in drawing near to you, in walking in obedience with you. 
Father, bring them to a saving faith by the power of your Holy Spirit, giving them new life, making them new creations. And help those of us who are here who do believe and who walk with you to serve them well, to speak truth to them, to encourage them, to challenge them, to draw them out, that they might even see your goodness at work in us believers, in the church. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. And even as we turn our attention now to song and to communion, keep us pointed at Christ. Keep us remembering his great work for us. We pray and we ask this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.